Welcome to Behind the Yellow Boxes, your one-stop comics history podcast. I'm Steph, your co-host and friendly neighborhood archivist. And I'm Brooke, your not-so-friendly, self-declared comics expert. We're two comic nerds with a lot of opinions, and we think it's important to know your history if we want to understand why comics are the way they are. Hey, Steph, so you've got another historical deep dive for us? Oh, yes. This week, I've done a bizarre deep dive into the world of 1950s psychosexual analysis, complete with homophobia, sexism, and a host of bad research ethics. Sounds like you had a fun time. Fun is a word for it. Anyways, today, so today we're doing a deep dive into the infamous text, The Seduction of the Innocent by Dr. Frederick Wortham, as well as the environment that led to the comic book panic that he was a part of, and the resulting fallout that Wordham's text and interpretations had on the comic book industry. Sources for this week. We were mainly going to lean on Seducing the Innocent, Frederick Wordham and the Falsification that Helped Condemn Comics by Carol L. Tilley, and Comic Book History of Comics by Frederick Van Lent, plus the book itself, which I did read, all 400 pages, and I have regrets. As we touched on briefly in our Kirby episode, after World War II, there was a general lack of interest in superhero comics. Although we think of superheroes and comic books as going hand in hand today, it's important to remember that comics are a medium, and superheroes are a genre. Generally, in the post-war era, there was less of an interest in patriotism and cartoonish violence. Returning veterans in particular found themselves drawn to new genres, and the market followed. Comic books found themselves transforming, refocusing on horror, true crime, and romance comics. Superheroes still existed, but their popularity flagged, and only a handful of characters, such as Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman, truly remained in print continuously. This was something of a brave new world for comics. While these other genres had always existed in one form or another amongst the comics landscape, Batman did show up in detective comics after all. The expansion was massive. Among the most famous changes in publications were the entertaining givings of EC Comics, renowned for adult themes particularly of the war and horror genre. You also had the huge booms of classics, like the Archie comics with their titular character, playing off the growth and romance genre, though with a bit more of a PG bend that ultimately would help them in surviving the slaughter that was to come. Even Marvel attempted to throw their hat into the daring and exciting new times when they tried things in their pulp classic comic like Venus, another entry in our ever-growing list of subjects for their own episode. These comics cater to adults and children, returning veterans, adolescent girls, kids on the playground, and everything in between. Unlike the relatively clean-cut Golden Age comics, these comics had gore, violence, and sex... While we think of comics today as a rather niche hobby, yes, we are self-aware. It's widely believed that between 91 and 95% of children read comics during the late 40s. Over 81% of teenagers, 41% of adult men, and 28% of adult women read comics. And these numbers are before romance comics began marketing themselves to women particularly. But, like any new thing that becomes really popular really quickly, there was a pushback. Pushback wasn't new to the industry. In fact, the creator of Wonder Woman, William Marston, was a vocal critic of comic books before he was invited to write his own comic in order to show how it was done. Moral panics happen. They're almost inevitable in a way. 
We've seen them in the modern era, lashing out against rock music, Dungeons and Dragons, video games, the internet. But we should note that there was a cultural change happening in the era, as forces like McCarthyism rose, pushing for uniformity, conformance, and clean values. Congress began to investigate celebrities for suspicions of communism and homosexuality. In order, and in order to avoid government censorship, the movie industry implemented a very strict set of internal guidelines, what we know today as the Hayes Code. The Hayes Code gave us some of the classic gems that still affect the movie industry to this day. Women of color and men of color began to lose what few roles there were because they couldn't be shown to be romantic leads for people of different races. Married couples had to have separate beds, and one foot had to be on the ground at all times during romantic scenes. This actually led to the concept of foot popping, so named by the Princess Diary movies. Additionally, morality clauses required evil to be punished, especially homosexuality. Bury your gaze as mandated by the Hayes Code. Now, if only the Oscars could remember that they don't have to kill gays anymore. Crime comics during this period were especially controversial, although they tried to dress themselves up in being moral tales about how crime doesn't pay. Which happened to be the name of one of the most popular crime comics. Many of them were sensational, violent, and purported to be about true crime cases. Similarly, romance comics were a lot more frank about love, sex, and marriage than some people felt comfortable with. Again, as we mentioned in our Kirby episode, there used to be far more comics companies than we think of today. One of the most controversial, which Brooke mentioned earlier, was EC. At first, it was known as Educational Comics, owned by Maxwell Gaines. Maxwell Gaines was the owner of All-American Comics, one of the many entities that would eventually merge together to become Detective Comics. And in fact, he was the one who sponsored William Marston to co-create Wonder Woman. After selling All-American, though, Gaines created Educational Comics, which is kind of what it sounds like. Bible comics were really what EC was known for during, during his day. When Gaines died in 1947, his son, Bill Gaines, took over the company and rebranded it as Entertainment Comics, one of the publishers at the forefront of the new horror trend. Tales from the Crypt was EC's new frontliner. Gory, artistically unique, socially relevant, and witty, EC was the launchpad for many industry staples like Wally Wood and Harvey Kurtzman. Which brings us around to Seduction of the Innocent. In 1954, Wordham published his treatise, which blurred the lines between academic study and pop psychology, and it became an instant bestseller, feeding into the public narrative that comics were bad for children. Wait, a narrative? So he wasn't the only one saying these things? Absolutely not. Although Wordham has kind of become a bit of a boogeyman for the comics industry, he was one of many critics and psychologists seeking answers to what people saw as a wave in juvenile delinquency. The Seduction of the Innocent actually ended up paraphrasing, without attribution, the studies and conclusions of multiple other psychologists. Well, he did kind of ruin a lot of stuff. He did. But before we start ragging on him too much... He was friends with Freud, Steph. This should tell us everything we need to know about him. It does tell us a lot, but I do think we should be fair up front. Frederick Wordham had issues. Issues that we are definitely going to talk about. But it is important to note that he was a huge activist for desegregation. 
It did some very important work in the field. In fact, he was a witness in Brown v. Board of Education, arguing that separate but equal caused deep psychological harm on African-American children. He also tried to work towards equalizing our justice system, protesting about the difference in sentencing for wealthy white children and opened mental health clinics that were staffed by people of all races in Harlem to serve the African-American community at the time. Okay, well, even I will admit that is very good. It was. But unfortunately, despite all the good he did there, he also ended up being very wrongheaded about some things that ended up changing the comics industry forever. Like Batman and Robin being gay? Yeah, like that. So as we mentioned at the top, during this time period, a lot of people liked and read comics. So it really wasn't surprising when Wordham noted a pattern in the kids in his clinic. When 95% of children in a certain demographic read comics and you are working with children, you're going to find a lot of children reading comics. But what was surprising was how Warden began to focus on comics as the sole root as these children's problems. Carol L. Tilly, who analyzed Warden's notes and case files in 2012, found that he ignored cases of homelessness, abuse, and assault in order to play up the role of comic books. He also cut down quotes to cut out things that he disagreed with, combined some quotes to make them more damning, and cited one especially troubled child three times, pretending each instance was a separate child to make it seem more widespread. Seduction of the Innocent was not entirely without merit. It makes reasonable points about the rampant racism in comics at the time, white savior narratives that were very common, how the ads in comics were ridiculous and frequently unsafe. And he rightfully noted that Wonder Woman, well, um, her comics were very... Kinky stuff. They were kinky. Yeah. That. Wait, but isn't that true across all mediums at the time? Not just comics? It was. And although Wordham briefly touched on television in the book, he dismissed it as less harmless than comics because kids used comics as currency and could reread them because this was the age before TiVo or Netflix. So they couldn't just go back and rewatch the TV shows they had already watched. Well, comics are lowbrow and readily available for kids at the time. That's probably why he focused on them. Maybe, but Wordham's other points were less great. Like you said, he promoted the really harmful concept that gays are all pedophiles by his insistence that Bruce Wayne, Batman, and Dick Grayson, Robin, were homosexuals. He also insisted that Wonder Woman was a quote-unquote phallic lesbian with a harem of girls following her around everywhere, going on adventures with her. I imagine that other girls would want to be a part of that, which makes me ask, is that an option? Because I want to join. Me too, right? Also important to note here that Hortum is Jewish, but so were the creators he attacked, especially when he went after Superman, created by Siegel and Schuster. He claimed that Superman was the Nazi ideal, compared him to a stormtrooper, and talked up Superman as being part of the master race. On a more whimsical note... Wordham was also convinced that Superman having powers beyond human ability meant that kids would get more gullible. He thought it was dangerous to show someone faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive. This was also pre-Superman power creep. 
So no super ventriloquism yet? Not yet. He also had the really weird argument that crime comics were any comic with a crime in it, thus encompassing almost the entire medium because any crime being portrayed, he argued, was glamorizing it and arguing for it no matter how it was portrayed in the actual comic. So did Wordham just not want plots? I guess. It was really weird. He also argued that reading comics killed literacy rates and meant that no one would ever read the classics anymore. He was a big fan of the classics. But just let me say, Dr. Wordham, sir, I read a lot of books, comics and otherwise. And you know what made me want to stop reading? It wasn't this week's Wonder Woman, sir. It was reading all 400 pages of your bullshit. This text had an explosive effect in the industry. Congress ended up having hearings on comic books, and Wordham, as well as Gaines of EC Comics and Martin Goodman of Marvel, all had to testify. Gaines was, according to many sources, hopped up on diet pills during the hearing and infamously bombed, insisting that all censorship was communist, describing lurid comic covers in detail, and generally coming off as a massive jerk much to the dismay of other people in the industry. The comics industry had taken a few steps to regulate themselves over the years, managing to find psychologists who were willing to give comics a pass and using those quotes as shields from criticism. But no one took them very seriously, and Wordham specifically attacked their early attempts at self-regulation and psychologist approval and seduction of the innocent. Did anything make this guy happy? Not really. He even managed to claim that Disney comics were offensive and violent. Disney. (laughs) Wow. Being a comic creator had never been a high prestige job, but during this time, many comic industry professionals reported being treated like criminals, outcasts, and even being harassed on the street. Gaines realized that things were bad, and so, like the movie industry before them, the comics people met up and set up their own rules to rein themselves in before the government could do it for them. Which was actually all the committee wanted. No one had the stomach for real censorship. The major publishers came together to form the Comics Magazine Association of America and their own code of conduct, the Comics Code Authority. They actually offered Wordham the position of chair, but he turned it down. And although Gaines had been the one to put this all together, he ended up being edged out of leadership by larger publishers, who also refocused efforts on the code, rather than PR, to push back against Wardham's nonsense about juvenile crime. The infamous white seal of approval thus was born, with its own set of rules. And those rules got weird. No comics with crime or terror in the titles, limited violence, good having to always defeat evil, criminals being unable to be sympathetic. Even lovable Archie Comics was not spared from massive edits and reprints. Rather famously, the cleavage reduction of female characters. Victor Gorlick, who would become EIC of Archie, even started out in comics by being hired to edit art of well-selling character Katie Keene so that her blouses were more pushed up. By some of the most baffling restrictions came from the outright bans, such as the explicit exclusion of vampires, werewolves, ghouls, and zombies. If you ever wondered why Captain America turned into a werewolf in the 90s, 
It was because they were sticking it to the CCA. Every publisher had to sign on, except for Dell, which was owned by Disney, whose house rules were actually stricter than the CCA's. Well, that had to satisfy Wordham, right? Wrong. Wordham actually argued that because of the way that that code-approved comics cleaned up violence, it removed the consequences and increased the sense of unreality that he already hated. The comics code ended up killing a lot of the industry. Most companies, including EC, folded quickly, not being able to find an in for the market under the new guidelines. It's estimated that nearly two-thirds of the industry collapsed taking with it almost every genre, except, of course, superheroes. The comics code dominated comic books for nearly two decades. Well into the 1990s, comics bore that stamp, although less and less often. The code's authority began to falter, however, in 1971, when Stan Lee refused to shelve a story that dealt with drug drug abuse in Spider-Man. The industry really was changed forever. Characters like Catwoman disappeared for years because she was too immoral to be a love interest for Batman. Lois Lane, who had been an independent, career-minded woman with her own stories in action comics, became a shrill harpy, desperate for marriage. Villains known for their sympathetic origins like Magneto and Doctor Doom were flatly evil and, quite frankly, uninteresting. And like the Hayes Code before it, the Comics Code put a stranglehold on more progressive ideas within the industry. Stories that addressed the nuances of criminal behavior, women's liberation, and human sexuality all got written out. Increasingly, comics became truly the realm of children, because it was difficult to write things with darker themes or nuance. Not to say that kids' stories shouldn't have those things. True. But even so, the Comics Code really ended up accidentally cementing comic books as the sole domain of superheroes and the world of the big two, with other companies being an afterthought. Although Marvel was an afterthought at first, before Jack Kirby. We love to see it. But Wordham's refusal to address social issues and choosing to project the real trauma that these kids were going through onto comic books ended up kneecapping the medium for decades. Again, like I mentioned earlier, he was friends with Freud. Yeah, that explains more than it doesn't. Wordham's obsession with reading predatory and homosexual themes into comics ended up causing a lot of harm to individuals in the industry as a whole. While I do think it's important we look at his other accomplishments, such as Brown v. Board, it's also important to note that Seduction of the Innocent is a really harmful, toxic work. As Tilly noted in her analysis of his work, that it's also just wrong. His figures didn't add up, his conclusions were strange, and he twisted his data to match these conclusions. An infamous part of Seduction of the Innocent relates to his claim that Batman and Robin are in a pedophilic homosexual relationship. He quotes someone who he identifies as a young homosexual, claiming that he identified with Robin and wanted to have sex with Batman. But Tilly discovered that the quote was a lie. It actually was a combination of several quotes from a young gay couple mashed together. And the two of them actually reported that they found Namor the Submariner and Tarzan to be far better fantasy fuel than Batman and Robin. Also, Wordham claimed that Bruce Wayne was gay because he wore a dressing gown. I will never understand straight people. He also just plain lied asked leading questions, and skewed his sample groups. 
He had a group of delinquents in his care. He then had them form comic reading groups, and he asked them what they thought about it, skewing his studies towards what these children, all of whom already had behavioral issues and traumas, to what, and then took what they were saying and applied it to all children. Wordham hadn't even spoken to some of the people who he quoted in his book. Wordham's ultimate goal was legislation, potentially even banning comics outright. He didn't succeed there, but he certainly did succeed in changing the industry forever. And we're still feeling it today in many ways. I can't believe this thing is 400 pages. Neither can I. And I read the damn thing. So, Brooke, do you have any comic recommendations? Preferably something that would make Wordham blow a gasket? We mentioned it briefly before, but it's a good storyline in its own right, as well as an important pinpoint for comic history. Green Goblin Reborn, The Amazing Spider-Man number 96 through 98. It is a true change of status quo for classic Spidey tales, as well as a change for the industry as a whole. As someone familiar with watching a loved one uh, go through drug abuse, seeing the reactions and heartache of friends in this situation always spoke to me. It's dated, of course, as anything from 1971 would be, but it's a classic for a reason and worth picking up if you haven't before. In the spirit of sticking into Wardham, I'm going to recommend the queen of his nightmares herself, Wonder Woman. Specifically, Mariko Tamaki's Saga of the Lords. It's ongoing right now, but it's due to wrap up in December 2020. It's a super compelling story. Two of the three artists are great. And honestly, Tamaki is doing such a great job. We love seeing queer women of color taking over Wonder Woman. I hope DC gives her whatever job she wants once this storyline wraps. And there you have it. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe, leave a review or rating, or tell a friend to spread the word. If you've got an episode suggestion, thoughts about the comics code, or just really like comics, you can tweet us at yellowboxespod or email us at yellowboxespodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Kevin McElroyd for the music that serves as our intro and outro. Feeling good. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Behind the Yellow Boxes, your one-stop comics history podcast. I'm Steph, your co-host and and cat mom. <laughs> Sex, what do you want? <laughs> He's not coming out to find me, so I guess he can't want it that badly. <laughs> I guess Dax is the official winner of the first podcast crasher. <laughs> For shame, Steph. For shame. <laughs> All right, let's try that again.